Chapter Thirteen of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Thirteen, The Persecution of the Saints. What a luxury it must be to have a dress that is right in every way, of good material, in the fashion, fitting well, with lace in the neck and sleeves, hanging in the closet. Nothing to do but go and slip it on when you have a sudden invitation to a wedding or a tea party. It was the minister's wife, Mrs. Brewster, who said it with a half laugh and a half sigh. She and Mattie had contrived to become very intimate during these ten days. They were not only drawn together by that Freemasonry belonging to ministers' wives, but each had a curiosity about the other. Mrs. Brewster was fond of John. Had he not been one of the boys in her Sunday school class? Naturally, she wished to know what manner of spirit his wife was, and Mattie felt that it was a privilege to get a glimpse into the inner heart of one whose lot in life had been for twenty-five years similar to her own just beginning. This woman had probably met and struggled with many Prins and Pritchards, and yet no deep lines betokening a soured nature marred her peaceful face. There was more reason than this, though, for the intimacy. Each had taken a genuine liking to the other from the first, and it happened that the elder woman's heart was fresh enough to understand the younger. Mrs. Brewster was spending the day at Mrs. Adams. She and Mattie had been wandering about the garden and orchard, talking about books and people, but just now Martha was telling Mrs. Brewster how to have her gingham dress made. To this end she had taken her upstairs and shown her how the back drapery of her dove-colored cashmere was arranged. It was the appearance of the fresh new gown that had called forth the half-envious remark from Mrs. Brewster. "'I have a fine, nice cashmere, a little darker than this,' she went on, "'made when they wore full, round skirts. I have been hiding it away from the moth and rust these dozen years. It got so old-fashioned that I was ashamed to wear it, even in Mapleton.' "'Why don't you have it made over?' Mattie asked wonderingly. If you live to bring up five boys and get them ready for college on a very small salary, you will find one cannot always do as one would, my dear, Mrs. Brewster said with a smile. I have no skill at making over, myself, even if I had the time. I could not have it bungled by a cheap dressmaker, and I never saw the time that I could afford the ten dollars to send it to the city to have it made. Haven't I got a number of good reasons? Mattie thought, as she surveyed Mrs. Brewster, that even in her worn, ill-fitting dress she had a noble dignity of face and form that one did not often see. Well-dressed, she would be elegant. She went over for herself in that few minutes, as young people do with old ideas, and then think they have originated them. The truth that a refined, intelligent woman cannot be made into anything less by the absence of fine clothes— and a coarse-grained, ignorant woman cannot be made into anything better by means of dress and jewels. Oh, how very little consequence outward adorning was, after all. She should never put so much value on it again. Yet she did wish Mrs. Brewster had one handsome dress. "'What are you studying about, child?' Aunt Hannah asked, when the company had gone. "'You have a pucker between your eyes, just as John has when he is in a puzzle.' "'I was thinking about Mrs. Brewster.' "'Tell me about her, Aunt Hannah. I think she is so lovely. All the people like her, don't they? Has she had a good many trials?' "'Trials? Plenty of them. There are some people in our church who would try the patience of an angel, and she's almost one. Some of them went snooping round, 
Now, that's the best word I can find, if it isn't in the dictionary. When she first came here, to spy out her ways, see if she was a good housekeeper and spending their money economically. They thought because she was young, they ought to oversee her. She is a born lady, come of good old Massachusetts family, and the blunt ways of some of our people seemed strange to her at first, but she has a way of managing them without getting their ill will. If any one said a rude thing to her, she always acted as though she was hard of hearing. If a meddlesome question was asked her, she would most likely answer it by asking another. Nobody would ever gossip with her. She would shut them up in no time in such a cunning way. She would turn the subject as quick as a wink, maybe say, How nice your flowers are this summer, Mrs. Jones. I love to pass your house. Your garden looks so bright. Everything grows for you. Or, Come out and see the collar you gave me. It is in blossom. Or, Why don't you bring your little girl with you? I must tell you some questions she asked me in the class. She's such a bright child. And that's the way she headed them off. You get a woman started on her own flowers or her child, and, as a general thing, she forgets her neighbor's business. Time and again I've looked to see her flush up and maybe give a sharp word back, but no, she always seemed to have just the right thing ready to say to keep them in good humor, and yet not have them any wiser about her affairs than they were before. Sometimes a busybody told her things that were said about her, that she ought to do all her own sewing, and she ought not to keep a girl, she ought to call on the people more, and she ought not to be on the street so much, but she went right on just as if she had never heard it, and, by and by, they began to see that there was no use trying to do anything with her, and they just let her alone. "'Is she always so bright and cheerful?' asked Mattie, half wistfully. "'Yes, indeed. Sick folks would rather see her coming than the doctor. And the poorer people are, the more kind and neighborly she is. The truth is, she is just the life and soul of everything. The prayer meeting, the missionary society, and the sewing society.' The nearest I ever came to seeing her angry was one time about seven years ago. Mr. Brewster had a call to another place, and they almost went. A woman said to her, What shall we do without you? We can fill your husband's place quick enough, but we can never fill yours. The woman was a little huffy at Mr. Brewster just then, at something he had said about the anthems. She was in the choir. Mrs. Brewster was still for a whole minute. She was always pale, but her cheeks got red then, and there was a sparkle in her eye that I never saw before, as she said, in a dignified way. I do not understand you. She could not bear to have any one hint at putting her above her husband, for he stands next to St. Paul in her estimation, I guess, and she doesn't come far wide of her reckoning, either, if she does think so. Oh, said Mattie, drawing a long sigh, I'm glad she can flare up. Perhaps I, too, can attain to meekness some day. One day we had been talking, she and I, about Deacon Peters, went on Aunt Hannah. He had been a member of our church thirty-five years, but he got out with Mr. Brewster. The deacon was in the wrong, of course, and away he went to the Methodist church. I was berating the deacon soundly, but she said with such a patient look on her face, Did you ever think about it, Mrs. Adams, that God honors ministers above most others? They do, indeed, drink of his cup, are baptized with his baptism, in a peculiar manner. Here is Deacon Peters now, was one of our firmest friends for years, received us to his house when we came first, and used to come over so often and bring us something rare from his garden. Fresh vegetables and the first strawberries always came to us. Then the cherries and plums and pears were shared freely with us. 
Now he has turned right about and become our enemy. Don't you know that most people do not have that experience? If their friends cast them off in that way, it is because they have injured them, but it may come to a minister any day on account of something he said in a sermon, or did not say, or from his position on some question of the day. Men will tolerate differences of opinion among each other and still be friends, but their ministers must think and act at their dictation. There is a sweet thought in even this bitter cup. The master drank from it first, for his disciples forsook him. And then her eyes got glad again, and she began to talk of something else without waiting for me to console her, and I am afraid I couldn't have done it in the right way, for I felt so wrought up about Deacon Peters. Blessed woman! I can't see how the Lord can help loving some people more than others. Go on, Aunt Hannah, Martha said, curling herself up into the corner of the sofa. I can hear about such a woman all night, even though it makes me feel perfectly mean and worthless. Well, let me tell you about old Mrs. Hunt, so that you can have an idea how the poor people just worship Mrs. Brewster. Then we must go to bed. We have always had a queer fashion in our church of piecing out our minister's salary with a donation. It is no kindness to him at all, for we agreed to give him just so much anyway. Every year we met at the parsonage and had a supper and a great fuss, bringing in our money and handing it to the clerk and he taking account of it. It had the appearance of being very generous, but all the time it was only paying our minister his just dues and turning his house topsy-turvy and burning out his oil while we did it. I always felt worked up over it myself, and have tried to have it changed, but some of our men are so set, they want to go on doing just as they have done for the last hundred years, and, for peace's sake, the rest of us let them. So we had our donation, as usual, last week. In the course of the evening, Mrs. Brewster and I sat in the corner by ourselves, having a little talk, and Mrs. Hunt came up. She is a poor widow, who makes her living by taking in sewing and selling eggs and garden stuff. She said, Mrs. Brewster, I've wanted to get a chance all the evening, when you were kind of by yourself, to speak to you, and I shan't mind, Mrs. Adams. And then she began untying a hard knot in the corner of her handkerchief. I've got something in here for you, she says. You mind, not for the church. They're rich enough without my poor pennies. I've been saving this up for you all summer. And with that she brought out a five-dollar bill, and pushed it into Mrs. Brewster's hand. Now, don't say it's too much for me to give, and you can't keep it, and all that. I guess I can treat myself to a little pleasure once in a while, if I am poor. I've had the worth of it twice over, enjoying myself getting it together. And I've been prospered, too. I never had so many jobs of sewing come in before, and my hens, good creatures, acted as if they knew I was a-doing something special, for every one of them laid an egg every day. Don't, for pity's sake, say anything about it to anybody else, she said, dropping her voice to a whisper. Or, like as not, they'll put it in the account with the rest if they hear of it. This is my own, and I want you to have it, not as a part of what belongs to you, anyway. I know now just how that woman must have felt that brought that box of sweet-smelling perfumery that cost so much, and used it for the blessed Lord, and I'm glad he let her do it. Then Mrs. Hunt broke down in a big sob, and Mrs. Brewster said, with tears in her eyes, I will keep it, and I will get something that shall speak to me of you, dear Mrs. Hunt, every time I look at it, and it will always be dear and precious to me. Mrs. Hunt hadn't been quite so private as she thought, for Melinda Brower kept edging near when she saw something was going on, so she stood behind Mrs. Brewster's chair and heard the whole of it. 
To make a long story short, when the ones that had charge of the accounts heard that Mrs. Hunt had given five dollars, what did they do after they had paid Mr. Brewster the two hundred dollars due him from the donation, but go and tell him that a mistake had been made, that they had paid him five dollars too much, because Mrs. Hunt's donation had not been reported to them? Mr. Brewster explained why it had not been reported, then handed over the five dollars, and they took it. When some of the other members got hold of it, they had quite a stirring time over it. Mrs. Dr. Cressy, she's equal to three common women any day, she put on her bonnet and went right out among Mr. Brewster's friends. Who wants to give a little present to the minister, sort of private and extra, she said. She got fifty dollars in no time. Then she invited everybody who gave it to come to her house to tea the next night. Mr. and Mrs. Brewster were there, too. And such a happy time as we had will never be for us again on this side of heaven, I reckon. Some might think it was an odd tea party we had. It was a real experience meeting, with singing and praying. Mrs. Hunt was there, too. We managed to keep it still from her what those poor, tight-fisted elders had done. Sometimes I think we might better have a lot of elderberry bushes stuck around for elders. They couldn't do any harm, at least. Whereupon Aunt Hannah wound the clock, and declared she ought to set a better example than to make such remarks. It was a good thing to say, Mattie said, recovering from a fit of laughter. I was getting very angry at those men. Spring was fast growing into summer. The following day was exceedingly warm, and Aunt Hannah and Martha, after spending the morning in baking, were glad to rest themselves. Mattie had retired to the sofa in the cool parlor, and Aunt Hannah was shutting out the sun from the west windows, preparing to cast herself on the lounge and sleep her forty winks, when she saw somebody coming up the path to the side door. Mrs. Adams wondered why Simon Johnson, her neighbor's son, a frank, good-natured young man, looked so sheepish today. She made him welcome, talked about his mother and the weather and crops, but still he was ill at ease. At last he pulled from his pocket a paper, and handing it over in confusion, asked Mrs. Adams if she would put her name to it. She put on her glasses and read it, saying, "'But, Simon, here's nothing but names. What are you after?' Simon twisted uneasily in his chair and said, "'Why, it's to see how many people would like to have a change.' "'A change?' Mrs. Adams was all at once very obtuse. "'Yes, I would like a change in a good many things. I should like, for one thing, to see the man ousted who has opened a saloon on the corner just as you go into town. If this paper is for that, I'll sign it with all my heart.' Simon blushed and muttered something about the church and Mr. Brewster. "'Mr. Brewster? What do you mean, Simon? Speak out. Are you trying to get rid of Mr. Brewster, or to raise his salary?' Whereupon the young fellow, while he closely examined his fingernails, delivered the speech he had prepared. "'You see, Mrs. Adams, the railroad is coming here. There's a sure thing now, and people will begin to come in pretty fast. Property is going up, and this town ought to wake up. Some of us have been thinking that a new minister in our church would be a good thing. The Methodists have got a young man, and first you know all the young folks will be running there, and the Baptists are going to build a new church.' We ought to stir round somehow and get up a sensation. Why, over to Burville, they've got a minister that plays baseball with the young men, and he has a first-rate time with all the young folks. His church is just crammed. Everybody likes him, and they don't have to bother as we do about raising his salary. Money comes right in. Now, Mr. Brewster is a good man, but he's getting a little out of date, you know. 
His sermons are too long and sort of dull sometimes to us young folks. We want to hear something besides the old doctrines over and over. We want somebody who would give us good lively sermons, short and not too solemn, and could draw the young folks. The church would fill up. Why, I know of three new families who are coming here to settle. They are well off, too, and if we try, we can get them into our church. Then we can paint the building and get a new organ and have a quartet choir, and we'll be just as big as anybody. Simon had been gathering courage as he went on. His talk sounded well to himself, and he looked up reassured into Mrs. Adams's face as he put the climax on it. You are always so go ahead, Mrs. Adams, and make things go as you want them. We know how you can help us. Besides, you think so much of the church, of course you want it to prosper. Mrs. Adams had felt herself growing warmer, and not with the heat of the weather. She wanted to take Simon Johnson by the collar and put him out of the house. She got up and set wide open the south door to let the breeze blow through and cool her anger. Then she took some long breaths for the same purpose, as she always did when excited, and came back and sat down by the young man. She looked him straight in the eye and said, "'Simon, I feel ashamed of myself that you dare to ask me to sign such a paper as that. I thought everybody knew where I stood. I've seen this thing a-brewin' in the air for a good while. There's no telling what people will do. A few years ago nobody could have made me believe it would ever have come to this, though. It's astonishing how people can be so blind to their own interests.' and then Mrs. Adams' eyes looked far out through the open door over the green fields, and she seemed to be talking to herself rather than to Simon. He has given his best years to us, and brought our church up from a little sickly thing to be self-supporting and prosperous, and such sermons as he has preached, scriptural, strong, and tender. What feasts he has spread for us, just like his master he is, catching a lesson from the birds and the lilies or the sunset sky, and the young folks think it is dull, and he's to be asked to leave. And Mrs. Adams fairly groaned as she said it. It almost makes me wish I had left and gone to heaven before it happened. They want somebody to draw the young people, do they? My Bible tells me the drawing must be the work of the Holy Spirit. If the young people slight and grieve that spirit, is the minister to blame for it? What has Mr. Brewster ever done to you, Simon? and the gray eyes came back with their penetrating look to his face. That you should be slipping around like a snake in the grass trying to unsettle him. It does beat all. But then, Satan never lacks for laborers when he wants work done. Do you know, I think you have hired out to him to do something the same work that a man by the name of Judas did more than eighteen hundred years ago, betraying your Lord in the person of his servant, do you mind that it brought him naught but sorrow? You want a man to draw the young people? Who drew you into the fold, and watched over you like a father when you lost your own, followed you with his prayers and counsels, yes, and tended you when you were sick, as if you had been his own son? And this is your return. Oh, Simon! Simon, I wouldn't have thought it of you. The young fellow's face had grown very red and now great tears came into his eyes. He dashed them off and thrust the paper into his pocket, and as he got up to go, he said, It is mean, Mrs. Adams. I'll never be caught in such a scrape again. After a few more admonitions from Mrs. Adams, he was allowed to depart. 
"'Oh, Aunt Hannah,' said Mattie, who had not been asleep at all, but heard the whole thing, "'how glad I am. Didn't you lecture him well? I hope he will profit by it.' And then with a sober face, "'Is that the way ministers are sometimes treated?' End of chapter 13